peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Welcome to the program, fresh out of Springfield. I was walking around, uh, Kirk, the, the human statues. So I'm coming at you with some goodness. Okay. Uh, Nate Smith, the Basketball <laughs> Hall of Fame uh, inductions. I'm, you're off of uh, week two in college football, week one yeah. in the National Football League. A little bit later in the program, we'll revisit a fantastic first in the NFL. Uh, but first, I want to share with you something and get your view on this, because anytime Bill Russell is in the room, yes. um, I get I don't get sentimental because I've, 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 I've been a Celtic hater my entire life. <laughs> OK, but I but. do have a sense of uh, thankfulness, right? A sense of grace and a sense of my God, what that man has seen. And to not forget the absolute hell he went through. Um, playing and living in that town. If you're listening in Boston, this is not a personal assessment I'm making about you being from Boston. My personal experiences have always been shit when I've been in Boston. And the storylines that come out of that place consistently from this day back to the beginning of time as a nation defy the imagery you would think Boston being this cradle of the beginning of our republic. And I'm tired of kind of wrapping it up in that nostalgia. And when I see Mr. Russell, I'm like, man, we know the big stories about um, the racial strife that he went through being in that town all the while uplifting the name of that town, uplifting that franchise that so many people loved, the duality of the love and hate through the 50s and 60s in that space. Um, he was honored for being a pioneer, obviously the first African-American head coach in the National Basketball Association, by the way, while he was still playing yeah. for a couple of years. <laughs> Player coach. Um, yeah. But I think about and get troubled with the, the love that only radiates through the green. Okay. Because it surely does not radiate through the brown. And that's just been the history of that town. Um, folks showed up with their 34 jerseys on because Paul Pierce was Paul Pierce. inducted. Um, by the way, this was the second time that uh, <laughs> Bill Russell was inducted. He's been in as a player forever, this time as a coach. Um, I've always wondered about other folks' experiences. Boston was the first time I was ever called the N-word was in Boston. Wow. The stuff that I've experienced on the South Side, it's just been disgusting. The stuff that I hear, even as a grown man. What's been your view of the space and the place and, and, and what icons like Bill Russell have had to deal with working and being in that town? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's been documented. Um, but the one thing that I can always say when I hear the name Bill Russell, first of all, I think one of the greatest basketball players of all time, or I would say accomplished basketball players, the, the, the amount of championships that, you know, he was involved in and, mm. and around. I mean, that alone kind of sets him apart 
from a lot of a lot of a lot of athletes, not just players, but athletes. Right. But that being said, he did it all in a time in which he wasn't he wasn't really accepted. And so I think uh, for me, when I when he's in the building, similar to what you said, though, Jax, there's an appreciation from players. Right. I mean, how many times have we seen Bill Russell sitting courtside and players come and acknowledge, take a bow and say, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for guys like you. We wouldn't be the NBA wouldn't be um, what it is without guys like Bill Russell. And so I think continuing to have his legacy present um, to me, I think is huge, especially now they're giving awards to guys now. The Bill Russell Award. I mean, the Bill Russell MVP, his name will continue to resonate for the lifetime of basketball, which I think is well-deserved and just to continue to keep, you know, giving him his flowers, you know, while he's here. The thing that I most uh, marvel at in those experiences that I have um, around these men that are the pillars on which this billion dollar business is built upon now, right. is that so many of them have to wait. Um, so much greatness has come down the avenue uh, that it's going to be so tough to get all of those pioneers right. um, that didn't have the same marquee mm-hmm. as Russell and, and, and Wilt and so many others. But slowly but surely, um, it's happening. And that's, that's the neat thing, uh, the really, really cool thing. Um, a little bit later in the program, actually, matter of fact, when we come back, we'll, we'll be locked in on a brand new offering about Muhammad Ali. And it should just be noted that Bill Russell was this wonderful character who could be in the traditional um, civil rights movement with Dr. King and, and, and migrate over with Malcolm and Muhammad in a more intense, you know, black power focus of it all. What an amazing Amazing dynamic. Uh, before we take our break, it's important that we let you know to celebrate live is alive. Sirius XM is giving current subscribers the chance to win two tickets to 12 of the biggest events on the 2022 sports calendar, plus cash for travel costs and expenses. One winner and a guest will get the chance to travel the country and experience 12 marquee events, including Super Bowl 56, the NBA Finals, and the World Series, courtesy of Sirius XM. For official rules, and to enter, go to SiriusXM.com slash Ultimate Sports Fan. No purchase necessary. Open to current SiriusXM subscribers as of July 21st, 2020. This all ends on October 15th, 2021. Void where prohibited. We got a brand new offering. It's must-see viewing. It's on Netflix. We'll tell you more about it. That's Kirk Morrison. I'm Jason Jackson. When we come back. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Forward Progress continues, and we are all riled up. We are ready to go. We're about to sell some subscriptions. We're going to get everybody. If you, first of all, if you don't have Netflix, I don't know. I don't know how you spent the last year and a half uh, moving through life. But uh, uh, there is a fantastic new offering of content coming down the avenue. And Kirk, there's no hyperbole today. This is exactly what I'm talking about when I'm talking about Blood Brothers, Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. Uh, let's break it down real quick and then we'll get right to our guests. Uh, for folks that feel like uh, they know the champ and they know Brother Malcolm, um, then they already know that this was a, a loving relationship. Uh, this particular project, uh, tells us a little bit more about the story of their friendship. Uh, Here are two iconic figures 
uh, larger than life that came together uh, and had a, a beautiful bond uh, that maybe younger folks haven't studied and then folks that live through it don't have all the details. And so that's why we're going to encourage everyone uh, to either tighten up their subscription or <laughs> get it rolling when uh, Blood Brothers, uh, Malcolm X, and Muhammad Ali drop. We have Miriam Ali. We're going to have every Ali sister on this program before it's all done. <laughs> we also have the director of the film, Marcus Clark, uh, to talk to us about this. Miriam, we're going to start with you. Um, why was this important for you and your family as a project? There tends to be like one coming down the avenue about your father, you know, more than not. Uh, what was it about this project that appealed to you all? Well, it, it appealed to me because the director and producer ensured me that they would do it justice. It was a topic that I was concerned about being told properly in less than two hours because there's so many dynamics and elements um, connected with their relationship. And they ensured me many, many times in different ways. We really, we love your father, Malcolm X. We want to tell a story that makes sense and get all the perspectives and do it justice. And I had to wait until I saw it to see if they fulfilled their promise. And they did. You know, one of the things as well, when I you know I look at a documentary, uh, especially for two iconic you know, people who we do know, you kind of already have a sense of who they are. So mm -hmm. you're trying to figure out, OK, what will this documentary give me? Mm -hmm. What can I take away from this documentary? So in doing that, what is the, the pieces or maybe it's the stories or something that we didn't know? What can we find in Blood Brothers? You want to answer that, Marcus? Yeah, I can hop in. Yes. Yeah, with, with Blood Brothers, you know, you're going to get a totally different um, perspective on Malcolm X and a totally different perspective on Muhammad Ali and not just a perspective on them as, as men, but really the influence that they had on each other. You know, this was a bond and a friendship uh, between 1962 and 65 in which Malcolm X was really a mentor to Muhammad Ali, to Cassius Clay, um, to helping him navigate the world and make sense of the world around him. And so, you know, I don't think people have really seen that before. And even when I started this project, you know, being really familiar with Malcolm X's legacy and his story and Muhammad Ali's story kind of separately, even, you know, I didn't know that they were such good friends. I didn't know how deep the rabbit hole went in terms of their bond and their relationship and what this really meant. Um, and so this is something that's really pivotal in history. Uh, it was pivotal in their lives. And this short three-year window really changed the trajectory of their lives um, and trajectory of history. And so I think it's really important for people to understand what this relationship was about, but even more so to see both of these gentlemen as men, to see them as compassionate, as, as, as human. And so we really tried to make a lot of creative decisions to allow people to have a different impression of both men um, in terms of kind of veering away from some of the things you, you typically see. You're not going to see Malcolm X in the same um, kind of fiery uh, position as you usually will. Of course, there there is that in the film, but you're going to see a more compassionate side of him. Um, you're going to see this friendship, this beautiful friendship between two men, this admiration that they had for each other. And then unfortunately, as you know, you know, we get to these issues of betrayal and kind of the fallout. And, um, you know, it's really complicated. As Marian mentioned, there's a lot of factors kind of at play here. So we really tried to present all the different factors that were going on and just remind people that, you know, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali was in his 20s. You know, he's in his early 20s when he had these really complicated decisions that he had to make in his life. And, you know, Malcolm being 17 years his senior gave him a little bit more uh, wisdom and understanding of the world and the nation of Islam and the teachings of Elijah Muhammad. Chatting with Marcus Clark and Miriam Ali, the film is Blood Brothers, Malcolm X and 
Muhammad Ali, I believe, dropped already on September 9th and uh, available on Netflix. I had one thought I wanted to get to with you, Marcus, but you triggered another thought. I'm glad we got time together, so we'll get to it in a second. What has yeah. been the reaction, if any, uh, and even cooperation with, if you needed it, with the nation uh, with this particular project? Yeah, well, so far, uh, you know, the public response has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, I think people are, are really kind of stunned to see the details of the relationship and the nuances of all these different things, these different factors that were at work. And I think people are really shocked to see, you know, just how tight they were and also curious why they hadn't heard about this before, you know, in such depth, why this relationship hasn't really been explored before. So I think that's, you know, that's the impact that it's having. I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of messages kind of built into the film that I think are having an effect on people that comes through the music that comes through kind of the story elements that are happening with the music. And so, you know, I think this is one where, you know, we tried to make a film that was going to be as impactful as it could be for the people who are most familiar with the subject matter and those who are unfamiliar with the subject matter. And so, you know, I think that really comes across. Um, it's really entertaining. I think our film has a deep sense of soul. And so you're, you're being educated, but you're also being entertained at the same time. This is not a dry, sterile documentary. Um, this is something I think everybody can enjoy. And so all of those things I'm very proud of. I haven't really heard much response um, from the nation specifically, but uh, there are members of the nation in the film who contributed to the film. Melchizedek Supreme Shabazz Allah, uh, Wali Mohammed, some of Abdul Rahman, uh, Sam Saxon, who actually introduces Cassius Clay, gives him his first real introduction to the nation um, and to Malcolm X. And of course, John Ali, former secretary of Nation of Islam, is in there as well. So, so we do have some representation in there um, that I thought was really important, you know, because it's really the faith and the, the Nation of Islam at that time between in the 60s, it's really that 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 brings them together. That's where they that's the bond they share. It's around faith and it's around this philosophy. And so it was really important for me to give a, an authentic window uh, into into the organization and, and kind of what they're about, what they stand for. And what was it that really attracted um, both Malcolm X and Cassius Clay and Muhammad Ali? You know, Mary, in particular, one thing that um, I can see and from the people that we've talked to, we've interviewed in the different stories that we've read is that it always seems that obviously this is Blood Brothers, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali. But I felt like even in this present day, the family bond that not only those two guys had, but both families sort of intermingled. And it seems like you guys have been even a stronger family now, not just the Ali family, but the, the, the ex family as well in telling all of these stories and coming together. Has that been something that you've kind of taken a, a hold of as well in the, just both families and the intermingling of getting this story across? Honestly, I was invited to be a part of this film, I wasn't a part of the making of it or, you know, the, the book behind it. Ilyasa was invited. And so it wasn't like something that we intentionally did came together and to do the film. We were asked often to do documentaries and we have to pick right. and choose. I turned some down and almost turned this one down, actually, because I'm like, you know, I really want to make sure that any legitimacy that I provide as the daughter of being a part of this film, it, it's the outcome is going to be something that I admire. And um, yes, I mean, you know, we, I find a lot of kinship with Ilyasa and the other Malcolm's daughters because we are, you know, talking about our dad's legacy. We're representing them. They, they can't be here to represent themselves. And it is important for us to be a part of documentaries where they get the family perspective. 
Um, there's many perspectives. You know, we know them as fathers and, and we know the essence of who they are and the deep reasons why they do what they do that an autobiographer may not know. Autobiographer knows what they read. And they're accurate in many ways, but sometimes the essence of the man and all of the, you know, different things about his character have a lot to do with their decisions that the, the daughters can provide or the sons can provide. So, you know, like I said, we both, I, I had faith that they would do the right thing, you know, and I trusted them. And, you know, I was my, my breath, I was holding my breath at, you know, watching it for the first time and like, please let this be okay. But I, you know, I, I felt the sincerity of, of Marcus and Jason Perez and the producers and Netflix. I felt their sincerity and I, and I just had to say, you know, discernment guide me. And hopefully this will be something I want to be a part of. And it, it was, it was excellent. It was a, a lot of people were saying they watched it twice. And I just yeah. think they were so creative um, the way they did it, especially for the younger generations to Correct. get in. It's hard for younger generations to stay focused on a documentary. And the way they put it together, my, my, my hope is that young generations take look at this movie, look deeper into Malcolm and Ali, and most importantly, implement some great characteristics of these men in their lives so they can help change, you know, our society for the better. Miriam, I have a 22-year-old and an 18-year-old. We have this thing called The List. Mm -hmm. The List is a series of art, mm -hmm. music, uh, film, that they don't have any idea exists. Right. Uh, Blood Brothers going on the list. I'm not sure if they've okay. seen it pop up <laughs> yes. in, in their list or not. Uh, that's Miriam Ali and uh, the film director of Blood Brothers, Marcus Clark, with us here on the program. Miriam, you've said a couple times about the overall family approach or even your personal approach about projects and how it got a hold of you and you're, you're holding on till the last credit to make sure that everything is everything. Was there a moment that did surprise you or any new information that you learned watching Blood Brothers? Mm, um, <laughs> I don't think there was anything that surprised me in the film. Um, there, w there was footage that I'd never seen before. There's no real information that, that I didn't know because I've talked about you know, the relationship with my father, Malcolm, with my father. So, you know, I just, I was just happy it was well done. You know, I was, I was very happy it was well done. I, I loved uh, my uncle Rachman and the, you know, he's such a warm, sensitive, sweet, kind man. And he's so authentic. You know, he has no pretension at all. He, him and my father are like that in many ways. They just say what they feel and the way it's come out, the way it comes out, the way it comes out, you know, he, he was dynamic in that film and I love seeing him he reminds me so much of my dad so I was happy to see how much he was interviewed that made me proud you know Marcus one of the things is always is trying to figure out the why and you want to take from blood brothers hey this is why that these men had to be who they were and why so much was put on them. Do you feel like sometimes like, I wanna put so much more into it, but I can't get it all, I don't have enough time. How was that <laughs> cutting room floor was saying, well, we wanna get this in, but golly, oh, I mean, man. you remember this story because <laughs> it does tell so much of the story of honestly, why this all came about. Yeah, I, I think you hit it right on the head. That's a real challenge here with this type of a film because you have these two men who are larger than life, who have these extensive legacies, who did so much work, who've had so many iconic moments. And so to really whittle that down to what's most important to telling this particular story right. um, was a real challenge. You know, staying focused on the relationship was, you know, not, not that it was a challenge, but the, the temptation 
to want to use other material or to go somewhere else and go on a tangent was something I had to resist, to be honest. And, you know, we're editing this film for a year and a half throughout the lockdown. Our edit process started in the lockdown at the very beginning. So for the entire pandemic lockdown situation, we've been editing in isolation and coming up with new ways to edit virtually um, whilst you know being simultaneous at the same time. And so that presented a lot of challenges. And then with the George Floyd protest going on outside, right. you know, there was a, uh, you know, deeply spiritual and like emotional type of headspace to be in um, while working on a film like this. And so rather than putting some of those messages and, and kind of being distracted by putting too many speeches in or things like that, you know, we chose a different direction of kind of embedding some of the messaging, you know, some of the deeper messaging in the film beneath the surface, right? And so I think for the people who know, for the folks who know and are paying attention, those messages are going to be very loud and you're going to get them and you're going to see that we're trying to point fingers to certain ideas um, about the culture, about what we're dealing with today, about some of the similarities between what Malcolm was, was dealing with in the 60s, what Muhammad Ali has been speaking out about his whole life. Um, you know, these are these are themes that haven't gone away. So, you know, dealing with a story like this, that's 55, 56 years old. And yet a lot of the same themes that we saw in the film through the archival material are still themes we're dealing with today. I didn't need to shine a light on those things. They're already there. You know what I mean? And I think everybody who's paying attention is going to to recognize those things. And so there was definitely a challenge in terms of keeping it sharp and keeping it potent and staying really laser focused on the relationship itself. But I think that also helped us in many ways because that's that's part of the way you get a different impression of these men. You know, we're focused on this this friendly bond and relationship. And this is something that in the, you know, when we're talking about black men, you don't always see that type of a depiction as just friends, you know, something that, that's fairly simple actually, but we don't really get that impression enough. And so if you look at how powerful this relationship was in just three years, you have to wonder, you know, what would have what would have happened if the relationship were longer? What if it were a 10 year relationship? You know what I mean? Like, what if Malcolm X wasn't assassinated at 39 years old? How could things be different today? How could the movement be different? You know, would we still be dealing with exactly the same situations that we are the way we are today? You know, all those questions come up and look at that. We could do the whole episode on, on this situation, <laughs> but I want to get one more in and show this Kirk. So quickly, Please. Marcus. There's some artistic things you did here, mm -hmm. called upon and demanded, just in how you shot people, the lighting you used, how much of that was super intentional versus circumstantial. Um, I'm, I just finished my first film and everything was circumstance. <laughs> when, you, when you're making your first one and you're pulling all that dough out your pocket, you're like, yeah. oh, I'm so glad the sun was right there. At right. that moment, I'll take it. And then there's other stuff where you're just like, I'm getting this cat for 10 minutes and I got to make mm -hmm. this thing happen now. How much of that were you dealing with? Yeah, a lot of it. Um, that, the, the visual style, the visual language for the film is something that's very intentional. Uh, it's very planned. Uh, it's very thought out between myself and my director of photography, Justin Janowitz, um, incredible director of photography. He does the lighting. He does kind of the setup of what we're looking at. I come up with kind of the, the framing, uh, what direction we're looking in, um, what side of the frame the person, the subject should be in. Um, but there's a considerable amount of planning that goes into that language because that's the film. You know, in a yes. documentary, part of the challenge with the documentary is, you know, it's usually always talking heads, right? And so... How do you make it feel a little bit more interesting than just talking heads? Nobody wants to sit and look at a camera that's not moving for two hours. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of creative decisions that go into that to make it feel as fluid and as cinematic 
um, as possible. The camera, especially on our close-up shots, the camera is interacting with the subject. It's following the subject. It's tracing them. It's doing this dance with their body language and their body chemistry. And those subtle, uh, those subtle choices keep your eyes stimulated. Uh-huh. It keeps it interesting. The frame doesn't always look the same when you go back to it. And when I come in close, I can get more personal. I can get more intimate. And so we really plan out the frame size. We plan out how large, literally how big the person is in the frame. Um, can I see your eyes? How do I see your eyes? Um, how is the light hitting your eyes? And so all of that is a plan. Now, of course, like you mentioned, sometimes you get into a location and you have no control over what's going on and you have to make concessions, right? right? right. So you have, a, you have a science that you are planning for. And then if those elements are not present, you start going down the list. Okay, not my A option, my B option, my C option, my D option. You're still following the same rules. Um, but you're kind of you're you're closing the window of what the possibilities are because you might be in a room that's very small or very dark. And so creatively, I always try to make sure that those interviews are are popping, that they hit different, and that they're beautiful and cinematic. Last one for me, guys. I, I'll start with you, Marcus, and I'll give you the last word, Miriam. <laughs> just one word. If I if I can get you guys just one word to describe Blood Brothers, you first, Marcus. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> one word. Uh, yeah. Man, I said it already, but soul, man, soul. I say soul because, you know, a deep amount of, of, of passion went into this, a deep amount of love went into this from my entire team, consideration, responsibility, um, a spiritual connection, an emotional connection, a personal connection. And so, you know, with the music and with the vibe and with the energy and what we're trying to get across, you know, soul. Mm. Yeah. For you, Miriam. It's a word I said, too, because it was so important to me was um, sincere. You know, that you know, you, you start a film always with an agenda, you know, and so I felt it was a sincere agenda. The d- choices that were made, of course, you can't put everything in it, you know, but the choices that were made, I think it made everyone comfortable, everyone happy, and, and it was honest. So honest and sincere. How's that? <laughs> I like that. There we go. Thank you. Awesome. Let me tell you something that everybody's going to like. It's the time that they spend getting over to Netflix, clicking on Blood Brothers and enjoying this fantastic relationship that is like most relationships, ups and downs, ebbs and flows and uh, real. And mm-hmm. so with that being said, Miriam Ali, thank you so much for the time. Thank you. We really thank appreciate you. you swinging by. Marcus, thank you for this gift, man. You provided Absolutely, us with, with the breath and width in a way that we hadn't seen it before and we thank you for that absolutely man thank you for having us today i appreciate it absolutely we'll take a quick break when we come back a milestone of the national football league and kurt and i were on it before everybody we're gonna brag about it when we come back here on forward progress you're listening to sirius xm radio You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. Forward Progress continues, and we love Forward Progress. That's why we named it this particular name, because we get to really kind of put our fingerprint on these next steps that are being taken. We spent the spring and summer popping up on channels, talking about unrest, inequality, and social justice. And now that we have this permanent home here in Sirius XM Sport Universe, we will document the progress when it occurs. And so we're so happy to have Maya Chaka with us. She is the first African-American female National Football League referee. What about that, Maya, feels good when, when that whole title rolls out? What, what, what don't you like to hear when that whole title rolls out? Give us both sides of that. Well, I love everything about it. 
And, you know, I understand the importance of having to announce the first African-American female. I understand that importance, but it will be nice once that now becomes, you know, once we normalize that, once we normalize women in football, once we normalize more African-American women, like in leadership and prominent positions, I think that will make it better for me. But I do understand the responsibility and the need to actually make that announcement. Beautiful. You know, my people just see the announcement, but they don't necessarily see the journey. They don't see the grind. They don't see the beginning. So when you talk about uh, or when you think about when you first started and got into officiating and you look at where you are now, was this ever a dream for you to get to this point or how did you go about it when you first started officiating? So it was never a, an actual dream for me to make it to the National Football League until I started officiating college football. When I first started out, I just did it just for the love of football, just for the love of athletics, for the love of officiating, just for the challenge. You know, obviously I never played professional football or I never played any competitive football. It was all just stuff in, inside the neighborhood. So I took it as a challenge for me to learn something that I was unfamiliar with and to try to master something. And I just fell in love with the pro, you know, with the process of actually becoming a solid official, becoming a professional official. And once I made it to the college ranks, you know, working at Conference USA, it became a reality for me when you see a lot of the people who you work with make it to the National Football League, or you see a lot of the people who are training you who are active uh, officials in the National Football League. And so that's when it started to become a goal. What is the process? Walk us through that. That's kind of behind the shield for most people. It's my attack us with this brand new National Football League referee kicking us behind the shield a little bit. Right, you so, decide, hey, is there just like a you click on a link and fill out an application? <laughs> talk to well, no, there's there's no click on a link. The NFL actually finds you. But the process actually starts with you being either a high school football official or rec league or wherever it is. You have to start at some grassroots level. And by you getting your foot in the door at your local high school chapter and just putting in countless hours of trying to perfect that craft and working like for myself, I worked a lot of uh, Pop Warner on Saturday. So I wake up eight o'clock in the morning. And I'm on the field from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. because I just want to get good. And. It just takes a lot of nights and a lot of days that you're just going to dedicate to really only making, getting paid in pizza and popcorn sometimes, <laughs> you know. Come on just, now. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Somebody yeah. hit you one time like, listen, Maya, we ain't got it. But we can tell him, Maya, tell him, hey, you got to do it for well, a gift card sometime. You know you're supposed to get $35, yeah, but let's get I've been, I've, been, I've been paid in pizza and Little Caesars pizza at that. Like, not even, <laughs> not even like Wait a, a minute, pizza. two pizzas for $8. I love it. Yeah, man, something. It's, it's, it was wild. So. Yeah. But I mean, I did you got a better per diem now, right? I mean, oh, it's absolutely. And so, like, now, you know, I can buy everybody else Little Caesars pizza, but. So it pretty much starts on that level. And once you yeah. do well enough, like in high school and you feel that you're comfortable, like myself, I started learning college rules as soon as I got into the high school game because I was working with a lot of college officials who I worked high school football with. They saw something in me that I didn't see in myself at the time. And so they put a college rule book in front of me and started teaching me how to be a college official when I was learning how to be a high school official. Yeah. And so I think that helps. And that prepared me once I got on the stage to attend these camps, you know, to try out in front of college supervisors that put me ahead of uh, most of my peers. And that made me stand out is to say that, hey, she's not working college football yet, but she looks like a college official. So we're going to give her a shot. And so once you do well on 
you know, your high school level, you progress to your college level and you start to do well on that level. Then you start to gain the notice of some scouts. You know, I was lucky enough. I was working on field with some people who were being scouted by the National Football League. And they took a notice in me and they said that I had potential and they just looked at my potential and they wanted to work with me. And that's how I got the opportunity. So you don't really find it and search a link and and fill out an application. It's kind of like if you do the work, they'll come. Congrats. You know, one thing I was I was thinking about, Maya, when we get, we're going to get this opportunity to talk to you is that, you know, we just have our first newly elected woman vice president, an African-American woman at that. And then so you have all this group of new young women are saying, wow, or young girls growing up saying, wow, I can be the vice president. But now with you and your background, especially in teaching as well and in being around young kids, how was that influence now that there's another uh, a job path for young women? You can be an NFL official someday. When, when young girls ask you about that path, how does that how do you articulate it to them? So I can speak directly to that because my students and the people who I work with, they actually they've witnessed the process and they see the grind and they see the dedication and they see how long it took me to reach it, you know, to make it to this level. It took me seven years after being in the development program with the NFL to make it to this level. And a lot of people have seen that. And so that's a feather in my cap that I can tell them, hey, hard work does pay off and it doesn't matter that you know you never played something or you're the only person it doesn't it doesn't kick you know that's not that shouldn't make any you shouldn't put any limitations on yourself if you like it work hard for it go out and get it things will happen if you don't necessarily reach that goal it's still going to open up another door and so i just want you know young ladies that are that are watching me and watching my path you know just to attack anything with that tenacity of trying to master it and just be the best Maya Chaka with us here on Forward Progress, brand new National Football League referee, the very first African-American woman in that space. Tell our uh, listeners a little bit more about your students. You, you are a physical education health instructor in uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia. Been there for, what, 15 years now? Absolutely, yeah. About yeah, people years. need to remember that you all have to work all week, right? Before <laughs> I do. Before you crazy. referee games. Yeah, I'm, I'm refereeing at school, it seems like, so that helps get me get me prepared, you know, all this conflict resolution that you deal with with the students and having to learn how to communicate with them and just individualizing your plans. It's It all prepares you for working on the sideline with coaches and just having to switch up your communication styles with whoever you're dealing with that weekend. I know behind you, uh, you've got some words of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Hustle, grind, conquer, dominate. You know, some people, you go to their office, they, you know, like they got the old Notre Dame, hey, win the day and this and that. But, but for you, what do those words mean? Hustle, grind, conquer, and dominate so that that's just how i live my life every single day and you know i'm a, like a huge hip-hop fan and these are like average words that i use in like in a lot of like your favorite hip-hop songs and it's just a part of my culture and so whenever i see a task in hand or if i want something you're going to have to hustle you're going to have to put in the work in order to make things happen and while you're hustling making things happen things are a grind like i get up every single morning 4 35 o'clock in the morning and i work out at my job, you know, at school, you know, from six to six forty-five before my students come in at seven, because once they let out at two o'clock, I now have to rule study and concentrate on, you know, my football career. 
So it's just a, a process that they get. You have to do every single day. And if you, you know, you get that process down and you repeat it, then success will come. So it's the hustle. It's the grind of working hard every day. Once you do those two things, it's easy for you to conquer. And then you keep repeating the hustle and grind once you conquer just to continue that dominance. Well, Maya, I want to let you know that uh, even though it was a preseason game, uh, my rookie year, I got on that field and I cried like a baby. So I'm bringing that up because whether it's preseason, uh, obviously the regular season will start. What emotions do you think that you'll have out there on that field when you're trying to do your job, but you look around and you see a full stadium, 80,000 people and just like, wow. Uh, yeah, I'm here. Any emotions you think uh, that come to mind? Uh, wow. I may have some butterflies at first. And it's, it's crazy because I've been in like that. I, had, I think I've had that moment. My very first preseason game, it was like New England and like Philadelphia back in 2014. And it was packed for a preseason game. And I couldn't believe it. And even when I worked at Kansas City, it was packed for a preseason game. And each time I went out on the field, it was just you look around and it's you just enjoy that moment. Because you never know like when that moment's going to come again. You know, you can get hurt. And, that, and everything that you work for can be taken away. So when I'm on the field, I'm just more appreciative. I try not to get starstruck, but it's just, you know, you're just happy to be living, you know, working right there in that moment and hopefully working with a gr good group of guys, you know, your crewmates, and you guys will work a solid game together. What has been the response that you've gotten locally? Uh, you are so much to so many people. Mm -hmm. um, they probably think they're not going to be able to get a, as much of you uh, as you've given in service for your colleagues, mentorship programs for your students outside of the classroom work that you're doing. And I'm sure all the volunteer things that uh, don't even hit the resume. How, how is this all going to balance for you? Hopefully there isn't too much of a shift. Like I always want to be able to make time, especially for the people that have been there for me in the beginning. And that's always huge for me. I'll always make time uh, for my students. I'll always make time for any youth. And I always have time for my family. So those are the things that are I really do value. I value the youth. I value the next generation. I really value creating, you know, new leaders. And I value my family. And so once you have those things in place, I think everything else just falls in. Now, the lovely thing about me working, you know, with the National Football League is that they value the same things I do. Like they're really invested in to the youth. And that's a huge thing for them because we do have to preserve our professions. And the only way to do that is by creating youth leaders. Right. And so, you know, it will be tough, but it shouldn't be any different than, you know, I've worked power five football. I've worked college football, which is almost, it's not as demanding as a national football league, but it gives you your first taste of what you need to do to balance. And, you know, you just make time for those things and everything will play out for you. You know, Maya, what's the lens that you watch the game in? Because as an official, your lens is going to be different the way that maybe Jax may watch the game. I may watch the game differently. But what's the lens as an official, how you watch the game? And even when you're not officiating the game, how do you see the game? So I watch it at like work. And the first thing I do is I put it on mute. I don't listen to the commentators. <laughs> so that because well, that's not good for me. That's not good for now. me. But okay, not, come on, you got you got to money, Meyer. <laughs> my first, my first taste. I have to watch it without the commentators Correct. because Correct. I want to see if I'm picking up what I need to pick up. Now afterwards, you know, because we watch it multiple times, and it's okay to watch it, you know, with the commentators. But I try to watch it with as little as outside distraction as possible. And so for me, when I'm watching a game. I'm actually looking, I practice looking where I need to look where I'm on the field, when I'm on the field. 
I'm a line of scrimmage official, which means that I'm right there and I'm calling offsides, you know, false starts, things of that nature, probably some pass interference at legal contact. But my view of the game is actually the camera view that is shown like straight down the line. And so I work those plays the same way I would work it if I was in the game. And then if I have questions about certain plays that happen, you know, I have a, a group text of guys that I, that I can, you know, rely on. I may, if I have a great relationship with the official who's working that game, I may text him and, you know, we might chat afterwards and just have questions. So I'm always just engaged and always working. Maya Chaka with us here on Forward Progress. Uh, Maya, what is your feeling about the role of the, the, the game referee, the official, uh, as it pertains to the connection uh, to players and coaches? There, there, there's a lot of rope in the NFL compared to other sports uh, as it pertains to the, fer- the verbal aspect of it. But, but so, how do you approach it as a de-escalator uh, or, or just a, a sounding board sometimes? So you have to realize that these people are playing and coaching for their livelihood. This is how they take care of their families. And they're going to be passionate about what they do. And rightfully so. And like me, I need to be prepared and I have to have that respect for them, knowing how passionate they're going to be. And sometimes some choice words may be used when some people are very passionate and they're very aggressive. As long as it really doesn't cross the line and doesn't get disrespectful and I don't get called out of my name, you know, there are a lot of things that you can just let slide because these are grown men. Okay. And there's a lot of testosterone. And so you just, just have to listen, you know, sometimes. And, you know, with me being a rookie, you have some of these coaches and players who have been involved in this game a lot longer than I have. And you have to have that respect, especially dealing with, um, dealing with specific coaches, you know, these guys have longevity. And if I, if they said I missed a call, you know, they might be right. You know, I can't crack and show that to him right then and there. You know, I'll go back and watch the film. But there has to be some respect level that you have these coaches. But you also can't be intimidated by them. So, but if you go in, you know, thinking that you're a know-it-all or thinking that the coach is always wrong, that's like the worst impression that you can possibly have. And your trust and credibility as an official is straight out the window. Well, we know Sarah Thomas was the first woman official Mm -hmm. um, in the National Football League. And then... She officiated this past Super Bowl, being the first woman to officiate a Super Bowl. How has she been a liaison for you, Maya? How much do you guys talk and and just kind of talk about what's to come for you? So Sarah and I actually, we got our start in Conference USA together. Mm. She's about three years ahead of me. I think she was there three years before I was. I came in right after her and she was actually one of the first officials to reach out to me. You know, and by default, us being, you know, the only two women on our level, we were like default roommates, like for everything. And so we just we just had just like a close little bond, like a professional bond. And she she taught me like a lot of the ropes, a lot of the ins and outs, how to conduct yourself, what to expect, what not, you know, things that you can say, things that you shouldn't say. But she also gave me room to be myself, which I think was very important. Like I was never in a, in a room where I felt that I had to be a Sarah or Sarah didn't feel that she had to be a Maya. So we were still individuals. And so she's always someone I can call on. We don't speak as much now as we have in the past because she's crazy busy. I would imagine so with all her engagements and I have a lot on my plate. 
But when we do talk, it is very meaningful. And it's like almost like, we, you know, pick up where we left off. That's a relationship I do value. Is there a particular spot on the field that you have uh, in the crosshairs as your dream as you climb this ladder? No, nah, I'm, I'm OK with working on the line of scrimmage. I'm OK with that. I'm also just someone who doesn't necessarily turn on opportunity. But things for me have to happen organically. I can't just go out and say, oh, I'm going to shoot to be a crew chief or I'm going to shoot to get here. I want I want this to happen. Right now, I'm just happy to be a part. I'm happy to be a rookie. I just want a successful season. You know, I'm trying to stay off of social media for all the bad things. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. no, that, that right now, that's my goal is just to go go as unnoticed as possible. I know there's a big lens on me right now, but I don't want to be really noticed when I'm on the field. I just want them to say, oh, she was out there. She actually did good. When that time does come, like, how do you decompress, though? You mentioned the hip-hop background in which you love. Like, what, yeah. what's in the headphones? How do you decompress after a game? Because, trust me, I get it. I know it's a big emotional high after a game. We're so intense, and it's finally, you get that five minutes to yourself, ten minutes or hour, two hours. How do you decompress? You got to throw on some good R&B. You got to put on some curve <laughs> or something. There we go. Love you know, it. Her, well, yeah. Her, this, this, her this. sets the mood. Actually, if you listen to her before a game, which I do to Jody for this, like, why don't you listen to anything to get you amped up? I have to listen to something that's going to keep me balanced and level because everything else is up, up, up. So yeah. I have to listen to something that's going to keep me calm and even killed. So, yeah, she's on repeat and right now. And a couple of other R&B artists as well, some Summer Walker, you know. See, so, look, you over there, you, you cutting promos for it because you know this is serious okay. XM, so it's not just sports. Oh, you got the music <laughs> going, so now you over here cutting promos for her and now Summer Walker. No, that's, that's good. Yeah. I wanted to know because, you know, obviously I know there's a lot always going on and you always see those headphones in the ears afterwards. And so what does that do to how do you decompress? So now I know it's some her and Summer Walker. <laughs> yeah, I need to bleep that out. Y'all can bleep that out if you like. But it's, it's, it's more than just that. Those are just like two that are like real chill right now. Yeah, we don't have to leave out too much. There we go. Yeah. Well, listen, before we run, um, it, it ha has there been a part of this that has hit you in a way? I mean, this is the, the number one sport in North America. It's the highest rated. I mean, look, look at my man's background over there for everybody, you know, looking on. Uh, hey man, it's schedule day. I told you, it's schedule day. Enjoy, enjoying the video version in the uh, SiriusXM app. Always enjoy forward progress there, by the way. How are you keeping your feet on the ground? I think my friends and my family keep my feet on the ground. They don't They don't treat me any different. You know, they, they don't care that I have this position with the National Football League. I still have to do my same duties to, to you know, to, you know, to be a good family member and be a good person to them. And they don't care about what I do when I go to work. You know, I have to hold them down. So I think that's what keeps me grounded. I got one last one before we go. I do. I got yeah. one last one. Maya, how do you politely tell a defensive lineman? Can you back it up a little bit before I have to flag you? How, how do you politely tell these, those guys who crowd around that line of scrimmage, which is now your line of scrimmage, how you tell them, hey, back it up or I got to flag you? Politely tell them. I, I just run in there and, you know, and, you know it depends on what, what's going on. I say, hey, I, I need to give me a little space. You know, y'all too close up on the ball. Look at me. You know, I help, I help you out. You know, I try to talk to them as much as I possibly can. Or I tell my umpire if I don't feel like dealing with them. I tell one <laughs> of the bigger guys on my crew that's in the middle that likes talking to those big guys. I'm like, can you help me out a little bit? So you just, you know, you don't want those fouls. Right. You want to say. Mike, we'll be watching. We're so happy yes, for you. So proud. Thank you so much for the time. All right. Thank you for having me. Kirk, how exciting is this? I mean, we have this conversation not too yeah. long ago. And then this weekend, the reality, the dream comes true and a first regular season game.
Yeah, I mean, just just amazing. I know this is uh, I won't call it groundbreaking. It's just it's just what it is now. And I'm happy that oh, she got that opportunity. But it, she's opened the door for a lot more other folks, too, as well, that look like her and doing it. So I'm excited to see her continue. And uh, man, you know, Super Bowl, you know, I want to see her in the Super Bowl one day. Out. All she has to do is grade out, right? <laughs> like, grade that's out. it. That's it. Kirk, as always, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Pernell Brown, our producer, we thank Marcus Clark and Miriam Ali for swinging by to hipping us everything about Blood Brothers, Malcolm X, and Muhammad Ali streaming right now on Netflix. That's going to do it for this edition of Forward Progress. We'll talk to you next time.